Hello, dear listeners of the MCA Scuttlebutt Podcast. My name is William. Today, we are continuing with our World of Wargaming series with an interview with Jeremy Sapinski, the lead wargame designer for the Center for Naval Analysis. We hope you enjoy this episode. Jeremy, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks very much. Well, it's great to have you on our show. So do you mind just uh, providing the audience a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, where you're from, your education, and uh, what got you into wargaming in the first place? Sure. Uh, so my name is Jeremy Spinsky. Uh, I have my PhD in physics and astronomy from Northwestern University. Uh, and I am, as you said, the lead wargame designer at uh, CNA in the FFRDC, the Federally Funded Research and Development Center, the Center for Naval Analyses. We are the Navy and the Marine Corps' uh, federally funded research and development center. So I got into wargaming when I started at CNA uh, just over 10 years ago now. Uh, I didn't come to CNA to do wargaming. I came to leverage my physics and astronomy background. Uh, I was looking to do analytics in support of the Navy and the Department of Defense. Um, and looking at national security issues and, and trying to leverage some of my math and computational skills. I have a background in gaming. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in graduate school doing, doing gaming as a hobby, right? Um, primarily role-playing games and board games. Uh, and then when I got to CNA, I had the privilege of meeting Peter Perla and Ed McGrady, who, uh, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, are uh, large figureheads uh, in this field, and they were they were working here full time at the time, and uh, we got to talking about my wargaming background or my gaming background, not even a, a specifically a wargaming background, uh, and and from there we we hit it off. Um, I was tied to a few other projects. Uh, I was working specifically with the Marine Corps. I, I did uh, an eighteen month tour down in Yuma, Arizona, um, and. and Given that it's currently July in Washington, D.C., I never thought I would miss the, the dry heat of Yuma, Arizona, as opposed to the wet heat of here in D.C. I'm still not sure which one's worse, 120 degrees dry or uh, 90 degrees wet. Um, but uh, after I finished my tour with the Marines, I came back and was able to start working full-time uh, wargaming and, and leveraging my hobby. Right? I was able to pull both the, my, my Ph.D. analytic work uh, and be able to think through problems from an analytic perspective, as well as my, my hobby work of role-playing games and board games, and um, learn how to put these together under the tutelage of Peter Perla and Ed McGrady, uh, working for uh, the Department of Defense and leveraging all the great things that I learned working with Marines uh, out in Yuma. That's interesting. You're actually probably one of the, the first people we've interviewed in the world of wargaming a segment that we do that actually didn't really necessarily start as a war gamer. You transitioned from gaming to war gaming. Do you mind just describing how that process is? Because there is a lot of similarities between the two. But there's also a, a good degree of differences between them as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, my hobby background is is not war gaming. Um, it, when everybody says, you know, they grew up as an Avalon Hill war gamer or an FPI war gamer, uh, I was aware of those games, but but they weren't where I spent a lot of my focus. Um, I'm not a history buff, right? Uh, I, I, I know very little uh, history, uh, to, to, to be perfectly frank. I care about the mechanics and the interactions. So for me, wargaming is less about um, learning more about a specific event 
and more about learning about the interactions between the people and the processes that evolve to create uh, the broader scale scenarios. It's the emergence of those interesting storylines based on the interactions between all of the players, right? Uh, the creation of the present is, is the interaction of all the historical figures and all of the situations and the characteristics and the capabilities that, that somehow join together in one unique way to create the world that we are living in today. And wargaming is a, is a simulation of that, right? Um, hobby gaming is a simulation of a lot of different kinds of situations in a fantasy world. So you're looking at, so when I say hobby gaming, you know, yes, I mean Dungeons and Dragons, but I also mean uh, other role-playing games that are out there. I, I fancied myself a consumer of, of whatever I, I could, uh, whatever I can get enough people to play. Um, and pulling all of those things together, you're, you start to see how different kinds of interactions that you can set up for different people evolve uh, a different kind of not only world that you play, but a different kind of experience. How different kinds of rule sets evoke different feelings and similarity and, and, and uh, senses, right? Uh, and your, your traditional war games will really take you to delve into that historical and tactical piece. But if you add in different pieces and different ways of interaction, you can start to explore new things about the players, uh, about the mindset of the commanders or the generals, uh, or remove yourselves from the actual persons of the generals and think about the moods of, uh, of nations and populations, right? So um, making that gap for me is just about, it's like leaping that gap, is just about figuring out how the, the tools, the interactions, the little pieces that build up how you allow the players to interact in the game uh, create new and different and unique experiences. So uh, separating yourself from the mechanics and separating a theme from the mechanics to watch how they make a person do different things around the table. That's probably a little bit too, uh, too in the weeds there for you, but. But that's, that's how I think about it, is uh, deconstructing a war game or, or any kind of game into the individual units of, of rules and actions that, that force a player to make a move. No, that's, that's, that's good stuff. We at uh, Scuttlebutt over here, we live in the weeds, so that's, that's perfect. So you actually bring a, a very unique perspective to war gaming, because especially, as you mentioned, you don't necessarily care about the historical aspects. So with your education in physics and astronomy, um, what what is is your contribution then then when when you go and design wargaming? How do you bring those expertises from those fields and incorporate them into wargaming? War yeah, um, don't tell my PhD advisor, but I use very little of the things that I learned uh, in the classroom in what I do on a day to day basis. Um, the math that I, so my my PhD thesis involved a lot of computer modeling and coding. Uh, so I rarely touch a computer model and I rarely touch a code, but you know what's really valuable is being able to talk to the modeling and simulation folks who are trying to pull modeling and simulation into Wargame and, and vice versa, and being able to understand what works and what doesn't. Um, being that I have so much experience on the modeling and simulation side from my PhD work, uh, I can really pull together an understanding of how that does or doesn't apply to the world of wargaming uh, and the analytic side of that. 
So my primary focus is on analytic wargaming. So using wargames to create data to help the, the Department of Defense solve some greater problem, whether it be strategic or tactical or technical. So being able to apply the analytic processes of real scientific rigor and real scientific work and bringing that into the very qualitative, sometimes squishy, um, always fluid nature of wargaming is really how it's really the marriage that that I'm very happy to to have been able to afford. So I'm not doing math. I'm not doing differential equations. Uh, on rare occasions, I get to write some complicated formulas in Excel. Uh, but but it's really for me uh, about understanding the scientific process and being able to apply real analytic rigor to the outcomes and to the execution of uh, war game events. That's interesting. So we've we've talked about the the use of wargaming has sort of two functions. The first function is wargaming as a way to get as your quote quote unquote reps and sets as a teaching tool to help you sort of think through problems. And the second way people use wargaming is predictive, looking you know how how we can test tactics, techniques, procedures, equipment, etc. in the future operating environment. And you seem like you lean towards the second of those. So what are I guess the um, how do I say this? The the pros of of the the positive aspects of that uh, side of wargaming, and also what are some of the limitations you've noticed in using wargaming as as a predictive measure? Yeah, so let's be clear. Both of those sides are very important, right? My colleague Sebastian Bay just recently wrote an article in War on the Rock about using wargaming to get those reps and sets, and it's a critical value of wargaming. Um, it provides that, um, I've, I've heard the term cognitive shoot house, right? How can, you, how can you get folks to get those reps and sets of their brain muscle uh, and move that into the future war where a lot of the future war is going, the, the success in future war is going to be uh, how strong your brain muscle is and how, can you think faster and better than the other side when you're really in the thick of things. So if that's really where the future of war is and is headed, uh, it is 100% critical that all of our um, young men and women that are that are putting themselves in harm way get those reps and sets whenever and wherever possible. But making sure that you put them in the right places in order to leverage that brain muscle is also critical. Making sure that they have the right equipment is also critical. And there are people that are making those decisions that have to forecast into the future, right? They are making bets. They are taking risks about what the future might be and what the future might bring. And I would, I would pull back on the word predictive. I don't like to use the word predictive. Uh, I like to so war people predict. War games don't. And what the war games that I do in the future operating environment hopefully provide data that allows people to make better predictions, right? So what we are trying, what, what I would be trying to do uh, in a war game that's looking at that future operating environment is helping people make decisions about what equipment to buy, about what situations are likely to come up, about what senior leaders and decision makers are likely to do so that way people can build the right concepts and they can build the future strategies and they can build the future of the armed forces in a way that leverages everyone that has those strong brain muscles 
to be able to make the right decisions and leverage those muscles at the right time and place to make sure that our national goals are, are met and our national safety is preserved. Excellent. So it, we we have there's a saying that goes uh you know that the nature of war is constant while the character of war is changes uh since you've uh, started working with cna how has the character of wargaming changed how has it advanced to to meet the needs and um issues of of t both today's force as well as the future force yeah um i think i think that's an interesting juxtaposition right because for us uh, the nature of wargaming stays the same. Uh, the, the purpose of it and what we're trying to do and a lot of the methods of, of how we're trying to do it um, because it's, uh, as I alluded to or described before, it's about describing the, the situations that you put people in and the interactions that you allow them within the game to see what they can react in and allow them to be creative and to fill that future operating environment with information that you can use to then give to people as data to make better predictions. The character of wargaming, right, how do you actually execute those things, um, is, is very, very fluid. Uh, and I would say that there are two pieces to that character. One is the, the physical character, and one is the... Um, I'll call it the academic character. So the, the physical character is the pieces. Um, a lot of people want to move wargaming into the electronic realm. Uh, in many cases, that is of value, um, when you're, especially when you're trying to do reps and sets, being able to have a quickly reset the board on uh, an electronic version um, it is very helpful. But we find from, well, at least I find, and I feel from a uh, future operating environment from a, a, a game where you're trying to engender creativity to understand 30 to 10, 20, 30 years into the future, constraining people to a computer and the interactions that a computer program will allow doesn't necessarily get you uh, the most creativity. Uh, people tend to focus on the technology and the interface as opposed to um, putting themselves into the mind of the game. In that case, the, the physical aspect of it, um, we often find we get better results from our players by moving to a tactical map and counter board game. Uh, when we're talking about movement of forces, right, we'll have those, those same small squares on a hex grid that you would see back in an SPI or an Avalon Hill game. Uh, sometimes with as much information, sometimes with less information, we don't know a whole lot about the future or where it's going necessarily, right? So we're building that information into the game as, as we have it, and we're asking people to be creative. Uh, and, and for us, that physical character uh, provides us the flexibility that um, electronic wording don't always tend to be able to do. Uh, I can't reprogram a computer as fast as I can reprogram a block by just telling people that it's a different thing and point at the same block. Uh, and, and it also, many of our games take different forms every time. Sometimes they look indistinguishable from uh, a, a committee meeting where you have a bunch of uh, men and women sitting around the table having a structured conversation about some important problem that are guided by certain guiding questions, brief decisions that they need to make, uh, action and reaction consequences within the context of 
a bunch of people sitting around a table. Um, other times we have not a hex encounters board, but we have an abstracted board that includes a bunch of different pieces. We're running a, a game about um, illegal, unregulated, and unreported and unlicensed fishing. There's one too many U's in there. Uh, IUU fishing. Um, that's focused on developing empathy with the people that are executing illegal fishing. And the game is very abstracted, but it forces players to understand how political decisions are influencing the makers, the, the, the fishers. And having people sit around the table and look each other in the eye and have those conversations about what is influencing their decisions and whether they're going to do something illegal and whether they're going to strip the environment, um, whether they're going to overfish a certain region or fish a species that's prohibited or um, endangered. Being able to look other players in the eye when they're making those decisions really helps to highlight the gravity of what they mean and start a conversation about why they're making those choices. So that physical aspect we find to be very, very useful in, in creating some of those um, environments and thought processes that we're trying to get. And the second piece of the character of gaming um, that I mentioned would, is, is that academic nature. And I would call the academic nature um, the topic. What do we care about from a game when we're looking at providing data that might provide predictive value or exploring a future operating environment? Are we looking at the organizational relationships between uh, a lot of, uh, within an organization, right? How many different combatant commands are uh, organized in what ways and, and what of my uh, J5 shop and, and how many different shops should I have within a command, right? All of these are important, care they're, they're important things to think about. What technology should I be looking at? Um, how many personnel do I need? What are the future concepts that should be uh, the fundamental nature of how we as the United States fight wars? What strategy should we use, right? The national defense strategy or the joint warfighting concept. All of these things need to be gamed. And I would say that there is also cycles about who cares about what and when from that academic sense of, of what people are thinking about. So, so there is that uh, how do you execute the game, and there's the what do you game about that is always and consistently changing. Um, and I would argue that the physical piece, uh, we find most success with the, the, the physical versions of, of these games, uh, and the changing academic nature is what, what make, makes my job interesting, honestly, because I, I don't get to war game the same thing over and over and over again sometimes to my detriment, but often to my enjoyment, because then I get to design new games and new games and new games about a new concept. And I'm constantly being challenged by sponsors who just want to think about something new that we haven't thought about before. Excellent, thank you. So you mentioned earlier, especially when I was actually very intriguing with the uh, the wargaming fishing scenario, uh, especially in this day and age as, as you know, we need to be focused on the places we're gonna operate in the future, most likely gonna be densely populated with civilians. How, how has that civilian factor been uh, influenced in developing war games? Yeah, there are many places that the civilian factor um, comes into play. And 
I am going to assert that more often than not, it's not taken into account to the full extent that it should be in, in uh, wargaming at present. The, the, the density of civilians um, as a major factor in civilian casualties, right? Um, but also the information environment and winning the hearts and minds, uh, as well as as well as things like uh, human intelligence, right? So winning the hearts and minds uh, means that hey, you got to get the populace on your side, but but that means you're inter out there interacting with the populace, and interacting with the populace means some parts of that populace who may not like you there because providing intelligence to an adversary. Um, so. Figuring out how to game all of these things is a very complicated picture because I don't think we understand well enough how they work. So we can develop gaming rubrics and mechanisms to allow people to think about them. But anytime I see things like um, putting civilian influence into a game, uh, it, it's very gamey. It, uh, the rules are very abstracted and they're not really concretely tied to um, a, a strong understanding of the movement of populations, because I'm just not sure that that is uh, existent. And, and and please correct me if I'm wrong. If there are people out there that have good research and good studies that they could understand um, uh, how how to abstract and and how to pull in from a mechanical standpoint, understanding our ability to influence populations that don't involve you know simple pluses and minuses to die rolls, I would be very very interested in it. Uh, because I think that's a piece that we we often fail at. Um, we often focus on the guns that we're shooting, uh, the technology that we're looking at, and the decisions of the senior leaders. But we're not influencing the decisions of those senior leaders by the masses of the population that may or may not be protesting outside of the the, the White House or or whatever Capitol building uh, from an adversary's perspective. Right? Those are really hard things to bring into a game. Um, Sometimes they shouldn't be, right? So uh, in, in Wargaming's defense, uh, there are many times when that is beyond the scope of the problem that we're trying to achieve or, or we're trying to understand. And we're really trying to understand how um, marine operations would impact the decision makers of a third party country. And yes, there might be some people clamoring outside of the, the Capitol building of, of that particular country, but Regardless of that influence, there is still going to be some aspect of the marine boots on the ground that's there. So we want to focus on that aspect of it and abstract away some of those other bits. So, it's, it, so I guess in summary, right, my, my bluff at the very bottom uh, is that it's important. It's not well done um, if, if you want to think about the full character of war. But I also think that that ignoring it is appropriate depending on the kind of problems that you're trying to answer. Thank you. Well said. As as we've talked to with uh, previous guests, it seems like it, it, most agree that it's not done enough, but the how way to do it properly is difficult. So let's re rewind a little bit. You mentioned previously that you worked with uh, the Marines in uh, Yuma, Arizona. What was that experience like? What did you do specifically uh, wargaming related with them? Yeah, um, I was at uh, VMX-1, or what the command is now VMX-1. Uh, when I started there, it was VMX-22 and uh, transitioned over time 
It's the um, Marine Operational Test and Evaluation Squadron. So I was out there uh, primarily with the working with the MV-22s uh, as well as the H-1s, uh, H-1 pilots. And the Operational Test and Evaluation Squadron's role is to make sure that the new tech that's, that's about to get purchased by the DOD in support of Marines is operationally efficient uh, or effective. Uh, so we were looking at a lot of measures of effectiveness of equipment that's, that's going to get out there and going to get put on uh, aircraft in the future. And that was really interesting because I got to do experience things that um, as, as never having been a military guy in my life, right? Like I'm, I'm not an officer or enlisted. Um, I, I'm coming straight out of grad school doing some teaching before I come to CNA. Uh, I got to fly in the back of an MV-22 a few times, and I even held on to my lunch a couple of those times. Uh, I got to fly in, um, in some Hueys, and, and it was an incredible experience. Right, working with the pilots out there, um, great men and women. Uh, it was really a, a formative experience for me, helping to, to understand what their operations looked like and what they were thinking about. So uh, at CNA, we have what's called the field program. Um, we're one of the, I think we're the only FFRDC that specifically takes our analysts and puts them out there with the Navy and the Marine Corps. Um, I'm working closely with someone who just returned from a carrier billet. Um, we have people that, that will spend their entire spend an entire deployment with a, a carrier. Unfortunately, we don't have anybody going on amphibs. Um, I did an exercise on an amphib, uh, and and I was really kind of advocating for putting a CNA analyst on there because it would be an incredible experience. Um, but it's good for us and it's good for the commanding officers. I was working for the commanding officer of VMX One, helping them. Work, uh, work on the analytic rigor of their testing plans, making sure that the test plans that were being written for this new equipment was fully analytically rigorous. So there I was using my, my physics degree uh, a lot stronger than I am today, uh, figuring out how many times you need to fly and test a, perfect, uh, a specific piece of equipment uh, to be able to have confidence that the answers that we're getting from a mathematical perspective are, are good. Um, and I was also able to do a lot of hiking out there in Yuma uh, and trying to hide from the 120 degree heat. That's for sure. Yeah, the heat's, the heat's going to get you one way or another. But um, so in, in the recently uh, published uh, installation of Logistics 2030, which came out in February of this year, logistics was described as the pacing function for the Marine Corps. What innovative ways have you seen or have you implemented yourself? Uh, logistics within wargaming because some some obviously do it better than others yeah so uh you're hitting on all the hard problems right uh you started with civilian ones with civilian problems which which was the easy foray and now you hit me with the hard one which is logistics um so uh we have wargamed logistics um the cna executed um the both both joint and service level logistics games um i can't talk to too many of the details, um, but from a predictive and, and future operating environment perspective, right, so focusing on that um, side of the wargaming dichotomy that you pose, uh, we've done multiple wargames, and I, I've been involved in multiple wargames specifically about wargaming logistics. And when you're wargaming logistics, you're abstracting out a lot of the combat. You're ab abstracting out a lot of the um, 
strategy, the impacts on the operating environment, and you're really focusing on how much stuff can I get, where, and how. It becomes uh, a, a complicated math problem that's modulated by, you know, do I have a visa and craft, so my civilian reserve air fleet or my voluntary intermodal service agreement uh, activated based on presidential authorization? Um, do I have reserves that are called up to execute some, some logistics functions that are necessary for the, the conduct of war, right? So just thinking through um, so many of the logistics problems becomes a, a very challenging war game. Uh, and it's very easy to make a war game nothing more than a math problem when you're looking at logistics. Because logistics in a war game has to be more than just um, the, the traveling salesman problem on a piece of paper. It has to be more than just figuring out the math problem that a computer could do otherwise. Because there are organizations, the, the four shop in a command knows how to solve these things better than most of the players that you're gonna get for your logistics game. They have computer modeling, they have software that, that will optimize these things. So asking a bunch of players to optimize a problem that can be solved with a computer based on their tools at home station is not an effective war game. But finding out where the critical decisions are that are going to uh, impact whether or not logistics can execute either at a joint level or at a service level, uh, is really the critical mode for uh, executing a good war game that is about logistics. Right? Finding out where the, where the bottlenecks are from a decision space, from a personnel space, uh, is really what boils down to understanding the logistics organization and the ability to make things flow faster or, slow, or, or things that are going to bottle things up. The flip side of that is logistics in a war game as opposed to a war game about logistics and trying to figure out how to include logistics into a traditional force on force war game is, is very easy, is a, is a problem that is common and challenging. Uh, we've seen many times where uh, either logistics takes over a force on force war game or a force on force war game uh, will take over a logistics war game. And finding the balance between those two is challenging and figuring out how to get players to um, do logistics in a war game in a method similar to the way that they would do it in reality is difficult. Oftentimes we'll see play the uh, logistics players being a turn behind because they're trying to fulfill the requirements that the force-on-force -force players identified on the spot. Um, and and, and the, the logisticians that are listening might be saying, and that's the way it happens in the real world too, uh, instead of the way it needs to happen, which is you know, the people that are executing the operations need to be talking to the logisticians during the planning to figure out how this works. So, so if your war game model doesn't model things out the way things work in in the real world, you're you're gonna run into some of these uh, some of these problems. So, and, and figuring out where you can abstract the game and where you shouldn't abstract the game um, becomes a big challenge. So, if you make logistics easy by doing things like just tracing a logistics pathway back to some home station, 
then that undercuts the adversary's ability to have a voice in what you're doing. If you make logistics not obvious on a war game map, then your players will not focus on the logistics. One of the things that we've had success with in some of our war games is, is making sure that all of the parts that you care about have physical components that are in front of the players that are of equal weight or at least of, of, of size and shape and in interact, interactivity um, at the same level as you care about them. Because if you don't give somebody uh, a token to fiddle with in their hands that has to do with a logistics problem, they're going to forget about the logistics problem because they're going to be fiddling with their warship or their uh, infantry battalion, right? So a lot of the, the, the problem of this is making sure that you figure out the scope of each of the pieces of your war game and put them together in a way that one doesn't overshadow the other, uh, one doesn't eclipse the other in a way that allows you to get the information that you're trying to get out of, of both of them. So logistics being one of those big bears in the room um, is, is a real, real challenge. Uh, and I would say we have, I have successfully uh, at CNA been able to execute a number of games about logistics, but I would offer that um, the number of games that we've successfully executed that include logistics are substantively fewer. Well, thanks, thanks for that. So I'm going to try to hit you then with the trifecta. We got civilians, we got logistics. Now I'm going to hit you with, with another one. So another big issue, especially in the future operating environment, and the current one um, is uh, cyber as well as operations in the information environment. Uh, since you've uh, started working at CNA, how have you seen these aspects uh, incorporated into wargaming? Are they being incorporated to uh, wargaming? Is there planning to further incorporate them? Yeah, I would argue that um, cyber in the information environment is probably the closest thing to a success story that, that gaming has seen because it has become something that everyone thinks about now. Uh, when I started wargaming, uh, one of the, the first like real war games that I took to my own and, and put my arms around uh, was a war game that we ended up calling Merlin, which was about cyber operations and figuring out how to incorporate cyber operations into a joint environment. So typically, the cyber folks know about cyber and the joint force folks know about, the, the, well, I shouldn't say the joint force, I should say your traditional operators, right? Your, your um, warheads on foreheads operators know about doing that. Um, and a lot of war games will just kind of sprinkle a little bit of cyber on top of it and make it better. So if I'm using my cyber chip, then I get a plus one on this die roll and making sure that I can hit that target a little bit better. And, and that's, that's kind of a lot of where, where cyber was. And I had um, the opportunity to work on a war game where we were focusing on figuring out how to bridge that divide between your cyber operators and your traditional warfare operators. And what we realized is that this gulf exists and people don't know how to talk to each other. Uh, and we developed a methodology through this war game, which we called uh, Merlin, um, because cyber is magic, clearly. So we wanted to, to highlight that and, and make people um, stop a second time 
and, and think through how how cyber is, is something that needs to be planned for in the same way that your operational plan needs to be planned for. And if you're not planning for these things concurrently, uh, then then you might be missing out on the on the things that that matter, and you might be missing out on an opportunity to actually leverage those capabilities. So. Um, with that game, we, we developed a methodology to bridge the gap between the cyber operators and the traditional warfare operators, creating our own lexicon for them to be able to talk to each other. It was informed by um, cyber SMEs with decades of experience looking at real-world cyber operations and taking that information, putting it together into a war game in a very abstracted sense but successfully able to get these to talk to each other. And that was a game that we completed, um, I think in 2017, 2018. Uh, and to this day, we still get requests for demoing that game, briefing that game out and um, uh, putting it into uh, places like the Naval War College where we just um, spent some time briefing uh, the Merlin game and playing the Merlin game with um, cyber leaders to help understand how we need to think about cyber, right? It's not just a plus one. It's not just a missile. Cyber is unique. It can do things that other things can't do. It can create unique effects. But if you want to do things like make street, street lights blink a different color, you need a lot of planning and you need to think about that. And you need to figure out what colors you want it to blink and why and when, right? It's not about turning lights on and off, but it's about turning lights on and off in the right sequence in the right place to create an effect. And that effect that you're able to create is not just blowing things up. You can create some real and unique situations that you could not otherwise create with any other method. So forcing traditional warfare operators to think about cyber, and in, in many ways the information environment parallels this, but it is a different beast, right? But forcing them to think about cyber as a new and unique tool um, is very important and critically interesting. Uh, and not everyone thinks about it that way, but uh, month to month, I would say, if at the very least year to year, uh, we are starting to see a more nuanced understanding of cyber and people thinking about cyber as, as that new and unique capability um, and forcing themselves to incorporate it more in the conversation um, so that way, even if they do it in a poor manner of just adding a plus one or a minus one to certain tactics, um, even if they're doing something as simple as that, they're acknowledging the existence of cyber. So how does that relate to the information environment, right? I mean, cyber is one of your big forays into the information environment, but it isn't the only one. And that kind of loops back into the initial conversation about the civilian factor, right? And, and how, do you, how do you use that information to get the civilian populace to, to do something that you want them to do? And before you can do that, you need to decide what you want them to do. So, uh, I think in the information environment, we're not as far along as we are with cyber. So I think the first step in a lot of these things is acknowledging that they are a unique capability uh, and finding some examples of what you think they could do before you can wargame them, right? Yes, the populace is on your side. What does that mean for the, the military mission that you're doing? 
and and that's a war game, right? Just thinking about that question right there is a war game in the minds of all the listeners that 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 may have stirred something in, right? What do you want the populace to do? What do you wish they could do? Um, and thinking through that future scenario, if everybody thought through that scenario a little bit, we would be have a much more nuanced conversation about the information environment, and we'd be able to pull those ideas into our war games and be able to say, hey, what happens if all of the people in the apartment building across the street just chucked all of the books out the window and onto the sidewalk? Would that impact the ability for the military operation that we need to take place? I have no idea. It depends on the operation. But thinking about things like that is, is the first step in really trying to understand and leverage the information environment um, in, in warfare in the future. Well, thank you for that. So warfare can be broken down into the strategic, operational, and tactical levels. Uh, what war games uh, developed by CNA do you feel uh, best exemplify uh, three, three separate war games, each of, each of those levels of warfare? Oh, that's a tough one. Okay. Um, so at the strategic level, um, I would say that uh, at Modern Day Marine, we just uh, demoed one. Uh, which we call Athena Stand Table. Athena Stand Table is a long-term competition game where the focus is looking at 40 years of planning in the future. We're looking at the force mix. We're looking at active basing and overflight um, where war is an action that you can take in a turn and it's adjudicated and done by the end of it, right? We're talking real, real high-level military strategy where it's not about how do I win this war, but it's about how do I design a force that allows me to persist as, an or, as a country, right? Um, it has its touches on grand strategy and kind of hints towards the existence of the State Department and Intel, um, but it's really about what is the force mix? What are my technology investments? What do I want to invest in and divest from in order to build the force mix that I need to be able to deter and, if necessary, defeat my adversary. So, so I'd offer that one uh, as the best example of a strategic game for us. For an operational level game, um, I wouldn't say that we have a, a, a clear, good, named box game for our operational level uh, games, but we do do um, a force-on-force -force matrix style game that we've run regularly and often, uh, and we'll run that at the operational level. And, and as, a, as a matrix game, uh, we have CNA's particular flavor on top of that matrix game, uh, but it's uh, really a, a hex encounters game usually run at about a 250, kilometer, a 250 nautical mile hexes um, that focuses on strategic decision-making and we break the players down into all of the joint components. So we'll have, you know, air, um, air, cyber, maritime, land, subsurface, um, special operations, cyber, and, and have all these different planning cells that will come to the table and, and try to put all of these together into a consistent operational picture. Uh, we don't have a cute name for that one. We just kind of call it our force-on-force -force matrix game. 
um, but we, we run that one uh, fairly regularly. From a tactical perspective, um, there aren't a lot of um, force-on-force tactical games that we would run. Um, so uh, I would offer some of our logistics games. And again, we don't have a, I don't have a, a specific game that I can pull off the shelf to focus on that. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, we just ran a logistics game for uh, a Marine Corps organization that was literally looking at how do I onload and offload um, naval shipping, right? What stuff do I put in what places on a ship in order to execute my mission? And if I've got a six-month time window, um, where do I pack the things onto that ship in order to get them off in an efficient time that meets the exercise schedule that I have to meet um, across, a, across an AOR. So it probably doesn't get much more tactical than, you know, how do I uh, leverage my, my cube on, um, on a naval, uh, naval carrier, uh, not, sorry, not a carrier, but um, surface lift uh, to be able to execute some missions. So, um, the, the challenge there in talking about especially the operational and the tactical games is when we're designing games, we're, every game for every sponsor is always unique for us. So whether we're designing a game for the Navy or the Marine Corps or Joint Command, uh, we're always designing the game from the ground up. So we have a lot of games on the shelf, but none of them actually sit on the shelf for very long because they're put together with duct tape and bobby pins, uh, very MacGyver style, uh, and then they just get torn apart afterwards. But a lot of our logistics games will really focus on, on the maneuver of some very tactical assets in order to meet some operational demand. So that's probably the best example there. Well, Jeremy, thank you for your time, and we appreciate you answering all the questions we have. As a, a final question, I like to traditionally ask all of our guests, get home from work, what war game are you putting on for uh, just pure entertainment value? Ah. Uh, well, uh, right now, uh, I just recently had twins, so uh, I'm not getting any war game out. My, my war game is figuring out how to fight the dishes in the sink uh, and the dirty diapers on the babies. So, um, but uh, as you know, so, so prior to that, and what I hope to get to in the, in the future, uh, my favorite game that comes closest to a war game, honestly, is, civil, is the Civilization series. So uh, I've, I've been an avid player of that for a long time. Uh, whether or not you call it a war game is, is probably up to, the, up to the listeners to decide. But I'm really looking forward to uh, Civilization VII if they ever give us a little bit more information about what that's going to look like when it comes out. And I figure by the time it comes out, maybe my youngest kids will be old enough that I'll be able to spend a couple of hours playing with it at the end of the day. Yeah, that's honestly the dream, you know, being able to, to game with your kids. Well, anyways, well, thank you again, Jeremy, for having you on. Really appreciate it. For uh, Do you have anywhere where our listeners can reach you or follow you or anything you'd like to plug real quick? Uh, so I'm not, uh, I'm not on the socials very much. Uh, I could probably be found on LinkedIn. Uh, and the best way to reach me is on CNA's website. You can find the Wargaming page there and my contact information. All right. Well, again, thank you very much for having you uh, for coming on our show, and to all our guests, uh, uh, keep on wargaming, get your reps and sets in, and tune in uh, soon for another episode of World of Wargaming. All right. Thank you very much. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Nick Rubel, USMC retired, 
Andrew Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.